Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the Ocean of Tao. Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, Episode 3. Today's topic, walking in a good way. My name is Alex Kruger, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Smith. Welcome to the show. So, Michael, how are you doing today? It's Sunday. It's a bit looking like winter out there, but how are you holding up in Nelson? I'm doing great, because uh, here we're having this beautiful sunny day. And it was funny, I was just uh, chasing away a woodpecker that was pounding into the wall behind where we were going to record this. So I was like, go away. This is a bad time to have a woodpecker in the house. <laughs> I guess he's looking for somewhere warm to stay. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a cold winter up here in Canada. It usually is. That's what I hear. So before we get into today's episode, uh, for those who weren't didn't hear the first episode, can we just review a little bit about that for them? Sure. Uh, episode one was called Coming Into Being, and you and I introduced ourselves, and we kind of give people a bit of a sense of what the show is going to be about. So if you haven't heard that episode, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to it. Um, the main focus of that episode was to introduce a Taoist teaching, a Taoist uh, principle, and a practice we call Xingming Shuangxiu. And that basically means, um, in I would say a general day-to-day sense, living a heart-centered life and being mindful and aware that we're always surfing what I would call the waves or the weather of chaos and order. And as we, you know, cultivate that awareness of um, being heart-centered and being truthful and being authentic and, and being aware of how we respond and react to the world, uh, the Xingming Shuangshu teaching says, keep those kind of in your mind in an equal way, you know, for most of your life. And that'll keep you true to yourself. It'll keep you aware of, of your, uh, I guess, growth or, you know, maybe even just your simple maturity as, as you move through life. And there's a, a subtle context in those characters that we got into uh, again in episode one that has to do with implying that this, this Taoist practice is a sacred journey. And we're going from kind of a place where we begin, obviously, and through a lot of challenges to get to whatever it is on the other side of that journey. And um, I think an easy way to put that into perspective for people who are new to Taoism I would say for the first 10 or 20 years, a lot of our experience is just unraveling our conditioning or what you might call your mundane conditioning, you know, stuff from family and school and, you know, being bullied or being a bully, like whatever it is in your life that kind of set you up to see yourself in the world a certain way. 
um, that that episode was just to share the, the Taoist model and, and uh, advice and wisdom about how to how to become heart centered and how to become true to yourself in, in the in the chaos of, of the world and how to keep that balance while, while you go on your journey. And being genuine is always the right choice. <laughs> being true to yourself, being true to other people. Yeah, that was a fun episode. And what about the second episode? Um, can we just review that a little bit as well for those who didn't hear that one, maybe? Yeah, for sure. Episode two was called Embodied Spiritual Warriorship. And um, I shared my story of meeting my first real Taoist teacher, which I only got to spend a short amount of time with. But he was a very interesting person, and he inspired uh, myself and some other people I was studying martial arts with to use our training and the way our bodies uh, changed and the way meditation, you know, changes, I guess, uh, certain reflexes and certain instincts about life and how to make our sense of our journey and, and our path in life something tangible to how you actually feel in your body you know, as a part of it. It's not that that's the only part of the journey, but that it's a great anchor, you know, um, when I think we can all say, I mean, uh, Alex, I'm sure you could probably count on your hand how many times you've had the feeling of butterflies in your stomach in the last year. Yeah, it's a little exciting when you do. Usually something dangerous is about to happen or you're nervous to get up on stage or an interview. Yeah, that's right. And for for those of you who don't know, my my good friend Alex is uh, he does stand up comedy. So when he says getting up on stage, he's not kidding. <laughs> Feel free to bust out a joke if you want that at any point. But um, I bring up that idea of butterflies in our stomach because it's an embodied instinctual experience, and I think most of us have a habitual way of you know trying to club our butterflies on the head or maybe you know, drown them in a bottle of beer or, you know, something else that we might take to make those feelings go away. But in Taoist practice, especially in martial arts, when we have something come up, you know, like butterflies in your stomach or perhaps a mugging at an ATM, you know, it, it's how you can drop into the moment and be really aware of, of your body and your breath and your skills and um, to remind yourself of how maybe how many years you've put into whatever it is you've, you've cultivated your practice and to use that as your ground of being, you know, and we also talked about this really fun, uh, part of, uh, self-cultivation that has to do with being really truthful and authentic. And, uh, we talked about this process of kind of like cooking your ego, like a soup over time to break down anything that you don't really want to carry with you in your life. And the more that we kind of break down and compost the stuff in us that we want to kind of move on and get beyond, I always think of that stuff as kind of like the manure you put in your, your flower bed. You know, so instead of thinking like, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm arrogant or I'm insecure or um, I can be tricky or whatever it is that we, we learn about ourselves, it's, it's to accept it. And in a way to use that to um, find a way to, you know, take that as a source of energy and to turn that into more motivation uh, to cultivate our practice, you know, and until our life just starts to feel more, I guess I would call luminous or radiant or, um, you know, compost turns into flowers. And in fact, in one of those characters we talked about in episode two, it actually talks about kind of cooking your ego in a way until a flower comes out. So... That was episode two. 
you know, embodied spiritual warriorship and uh, a really strong invitation for people to make their awareness practice, their self-cultivation practices about something really tangible and something that you can feel as a skill, even like breathing. Yeah, and we actually did some breathing exercises too. To envision a rope kind of limiting your breath actually in two different directions. That one was inhale halfway, your belly expands forward, then a rope kind of stops there. And then from that point, inhale side to side and allow that to fill mm-hmm. and then kind of reverse the process. That was a fun method of breathing. Yeah, well, since we're talking about it, want to do the next one? Sure. Sure, yeah. So if we're doing the, and these are the basic breathing exercises to develop something called embryonic breathing, um, which is a very thorough, very deep practice. And uh, it, it takes a while to get all the pieces. So the first part that we learned, uh, I think we did this in episode one, was to feel as if when you're breathing, you're trying to stretch a, an elastic band between your belly button and your spine. And to this day, I've been doing that for probably 30 or 40 years. I still love the feeling of just dropping in. There's my belly button. There's my spine. Breathe all the way out. And then just slowly breathe all the way in. Stretch it out. And then as we exhale, just let that elastic push the breath out. You know, you can do that over and over again. And it's kind of funny. I like to tease people nowadays because we all want to have six pack abs. And, you know, the first exercise is try and have a beer belly <laughs> only for a little bit. It's more practical. Well, it, it, it teaches us how to relax around those butterflies, right? So if we can open the belly front and back, now we're going to breathe in again. And I'll just talk about it, then we'll try it. We're going to breathe in and let the elastic uh, go front to back halfway. And then, like you said, it becomes a rope. And then we're going to feel the elastic going side to side. So let's breathe in, then all the way out. Breathe in, stretch your belly button away from your spine. And then it gets stuck on the rope. So now breathe in and try and feel that elastic stretching out side to side. And as you breathe out, feel that elastic pulling side to side. And then front and back. So that elastic, both of those elastics squeeze your breath out. And we inhale, stretch front to back. Stop there. Inhale some more stretching side to side. And then exhale, kind of squeezing side to side, squeezing front and back. So if you're listening and you've never done anything like before and you really like the breath work, stop the audio or the video and just practice that for a couple of minutes so that you can really feel it. Cause if you've never done it before, I wouldn't recommend adding anything else for a, you know, until you've done it for a few days anyway. So the next one is a little bit tricky because now we want to feel like we're kind of rocking our pelvis a little bit. So as I breathe out, I'm going to collapse my body and my tailbone's going to kind of tuck forward a bit. And then as I inhale, I'm going to push my tailbone down and back and then hold my spine up. Exhale, the body collapses just a little bit and the pelvis rocks forward, tailbone forward. So I'm kind of like curling up a little bit like I'm scared. And then I inhale, tailbone down and back, reaching up at the top of my head, opening the front of my body. So that, that's a real fundamental part of uh, many aspects of Taoist breath work. 
And that's actually why Taoist meditation uh, benches have those curved feet, so that your body can rock on the bench while you're playing with uh, your spine. So if we have an elastic that's going front and back, that can turn into a rope, and we have an elastic that's going side to side, that may turn into a rope someday, <laughs> the next thing we want to do is feel an elastic that's actually going from our tailbone to the top of our head. So I'd encourage people to just start there and keep your awareness on an elastic between your tailbone and the top of your head. And as you breathe in, stretch the elastic from the bottom of your body all the way to the top. As you exhale, try not to collapse your posture too much, but let the elastic shrink and let your breath drop from the top all the way down into the bottom. And we inhale, feeling the bottom of the body filling in the belly, front, back, side to side. And then just keep filling the breath up into the chest, up into the throat. And if you can, notice you can actually breathe all the way into the top of your sinuses that are just above your eyeballs. And then exhale, let the breath sink out of your body, almost like you're, you're emptying something that's full of water. So you just sort of drain your body of breath all the way up. So, this is how it goes if you're doing them all together. You breathe in front to back a little bit and then hold that side to side a little bit. Hold that. And then you breathe from the base of your body up into the top of your head, stretching that elastic out, stretching all three elastics out, and then breathing out and letting all three elastics push your breath out. And there's about 15 different ways you can play with different uh, combinations of that. But eventually you want to do them all at the same time. And eventually, and we'll play with this in future episodes, you actually want to feel where those three elastics are rubbing into each other. So I would encourage people to just play with that. Front, back, side to side, up, down. Spend some time doing just the front, back. Spend some time doing just the side to side. Spend some time doing just the up, down, rocking a little bit to feel your spine and tailbone. And then play with doing one and two, one, two, and three, and then all three together. And you'll be on your way to developing the skill of uh, not only embryonic breathing, but waking up your sensation of Dantian. Uh, the, the deeper areas and volumes of, of your body and how they're connected to your deeper meridians and, and energy systems. So there's a lot to that, but um, just something to play with. And again, Taoism is a practice and we're learning to use any skill. It could be juggling, it could be breath work, it could be stand-up comedy, but we're learning to use any skill to change how we relate to the world and ourself. Because that's Xingming Shuangxu. Cool. <laughs> that is powerful. And I think a big part about that breathing, that was really cool, um, the stretching the spine vertically. But if you're sitting on a, a bit of a harder surface, maybe that helps. Um, I got like a bench here. Just for the rocking of the tailbone, that was really nice on the lower back. Mm -hmm. And it actually helped with the breathing as well and kind of opening and closing. That was, that was cool. And I, I always think of like, you know, how, how people sound or how I sound or you sound on the podcast. The more I focus on my breath, the more I feel like, wow, I probably sound uh, more resonant through the microphone or something. <laughs> yeah, when you're breathing more deeply. 
Yeah. Yeah. That'll happen. <laughs> so the name of this episode is walking in a good way. What does that mean? Is it just walking around and, and being nice? Well, that would be a, I think a good start. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's a lot of practices in, in Qigong and martial arts that have to do with walking. And uh, another thing we talked about in the last episode is that you, uh, Alex, are doing a thousand days of your Qigong, including some Bagua circle walking. And um, that's incredible. Way to go. Thanks. It's really fun, actually. I mean, sometimes you are feeling a little sore from doing the same exercises every day but at least they're a gentle enough series of exercises just walking and standing meditation mm. so it isn't so bad but the consistency is definitely causing a shift in in how you how i feel carrying my body just more balanced walking around just feeling more rooted yeah. more relaxed so uh, what day are you on yeah let's see that actually almost a month now it's the eighth today so that was the 10th i started last month Wow. It was 10, 10, 20, 20, because it's fun to, fun numbers. <laughs> You're 136th of the way there. <laughs> That's okay. It's an enjoyable process. I do not mind doing this stuff every day. That's for sure. Yeah. So the name of the episode, like you had said, is Walking in a Good Way. And uh, although I think, you know, there's many aspects of, of this that you can bring into the, the physical act of walking, the term walking in a good way is actually uh, an expression a lot of indigenous cultures use for being a conscious human being uh, or what today we would call a spiritual life. So you can kind of walk maybe in a clumsy way, walk in an unconscious way, or you can walk in whatever we mean by a good way. So that's what this uh, conversation is going to be about. And um, I can say that there are two experiences that I've had in my life um, over the last 30 years that really changed my perception of Taoist practice, Taoist uh, philosophy, where Taoism comes from, why Taoism has certain uh, really deep concerns uh, around um, how societies work and, and how to be a good human being. So um, I'm kind of excited to share those because I think those will help people maybe uh, relate to Taoism and, and practice in, in a more instinctual and intuitive way. Well, I'd love to hear about those experiences and how they shifted your path, how they changed things for you. Yeah, sure. So the, the first one happened in the early 1990s. And um, at that point in my career, my martial arts career, I had my own school in... Uh, British Columbia, down uh, close to Vancouver. And I was studying with three or four very high-level masters at the same time. And that was an unusual thing uh, in, in martial arts that long ago. And in fact, about 10 years earlier, back in the 1980s, most martial arts teachers would only teach you at a high level if you only studied with them and, and basically promised to only teach their family or their styles uh, you know, lineage and practice and skills, because it was kind of like a family business for a lot of, you know, people. But back in the 90s, there was a lot of really high-level teachers who were also just professional coaches, like coaching professional athletes, uh, who were Kung Fu teachers and Qigong teachers and Tai Chi teachers, because um, those skills in China are kind of like an Olympic sport. 
So if you're a high-level teacher, you're in a way like an international level Olympic coach. So there was all these amazing teachers coming over from China. And I was very, very lucky to get to study with a bunch of them. But one person that I got to study with, uh, her name was Madame Gao Fu. And she was one of very, very few women in very high-level martial arts that was given, um, and I'm not sure how to describe this, but um, she was what people called one of the living treasures of China. And I think at that point there was only 12 or 13 people, and she was the only woman woman who uh, was actually promoted, accepted, and honored by the entire you know Chinese government uh, as such a valuable human being. So she had come to the West and she was in the United States. So I went down there to study with her and I was studying Chen style Tai Chi, uh, Hun Yuan Qigong and some other things. And she was an amazing teacher. And I don't know how many, I know you've studied with many, many people, Alex, but I don't know if you've ever studied with a really high level 70 something year old Chinese woman. Um, but they're usually a little bit shy, you know, and, and a little bit careful. This amazing woman 30 years ago, uh, probably close to 30 years ago or so, she would invite us to put our hands on her abdomen. And then she would move around and show us exactly all of the different ways uh, internal movement and activation of what we call Dan Tian could generate power and also uh, receive power, like in the sense of combat, uh, in the Tai Chi sense, which was just mind blowing to feel someone not only, you know, able to do that and able to show you how to do that, but ask you, put your hands right here and I'll show you exactly what it feels like. So she was a really, really amazing person to work with. And she had a very, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that I can uh, relate to a little bit of that experience with a teacher in Vancouver. I trained with Dave and his Bagua style, the Chung style was really oriented towards that stuff too, you know, deep movements and just kind of feeling where everything's moving around. It's really cool stuff. Yeah. And I think that's just a natural progression when you start working with higher and higher level people and you get to a level that's high enough that what you need to learn next is about that. That's almost inevitably when you're going to, it's like they say, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. It's kind of like when your Dantian begins to open, people will start showing you what to do with it. <laughs> It's, it's fun, but it's also really effective. Instead of just moving your arms around, it really brings that sensation into, oh, it comes through the body. Yeah, and that has to do with martial arts. And, you know, we just did this breathing exercise that can help you become more aware of the energetic part. So there's many, many, you know, amazing things that we can do with those practices. But if I go back to my story with uh, Gao Fu, she was, uh, and again, an amazing person, and I don't have time to tell her whole story, but she had found a certain kind of solace in uh, Tai Chi and meditation and Taoist practice. And um, at that time, again, I was teaching and I was studying with her with a whole bunch of other teachers who all had their own school. So that was a really unique environment. Again, you know, all these different people at a pretty high level, all studying with many masters now coming over from China who are all Olympic level coaching, you know, in the sense of, holy cow, that's a pretty rich room, right? Full of really amazing people. And uh, she had heard, Gauf, Madame Gaofu had heard that I had a, an indigenous background in my family and we were all having tea and she asked me to come over and, and uh, talk to her. And there was a translator 
um, who's now kind of a colleague. Uh, his name is Harrison Moretz. He's a Taoist priest, actually. Uh, and he has a center called the Taoist Studies Institute. So I would encourage anyone to check that out. He's in a, a really uh, uh, humble and insightful and, and, and very humorous guy to, to spend some time with. So there I am sitting with, you know, I'm trying to like think of like the right kind of background music, you know, Madame Gaofu and, and uh, you know, Harrison and I having a cup of tea. And she was asking me about my experience and what indigenous people in this part of the world think about and, you know, how they lived and what their history was like. And uh, I thought it was, you know, a pretty reasonable conversation. But uh, after we had that conversation, she said that, um, well, I had asked her why why she was interested in, in, in that part of, you know, th this part of the world or that part of me. And she had said that she, uh, her understanding was that Taoism came from the indigenous people of Asia. And they often refer to all of those different tribes and, and indigenous nations in China as the Chunran people or the people who are still true human beings. And it's interesting uh, if you're at all familiar with indigenous cultures in the modern world, but almost many, many indigenous, in, in many indigenous languages, when people refer to themselves in their culture, they just call themselves the true human beings. Like if you translate the name of my ancestors into English, it just means the human beings, you know, or the, uh, the, the ones who are walking in a good way as human beings. Right. So that was an interesting thing for me. But at that point in my life, I was so focused on martial arts and, and teaching and finding other teachers and stuff. I just remembered as a kind of a strange conversation in a way going, wow, that's an interesting way to look at Taoism. And now I feel a bit strange, you know, about some parts of my life. And, and I thought about it a bit. But I think for the next, you know, 10 years, I was so focused on everything else that I was doing. I had studied, I was studying Chinese medicine. I became a doctor. I started a school of Chinese medicine. So my, my life got really busy. But then about 10 years later, the second thing happened. Okay. Was it? I'm excited to hear about this. The first story was good. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so th this is a weird one. And, and I, I just want to ask everyone who hears this uh, or who is watching this to give me a few minutes because it's going to sound for a minute like I'm kind of maybe crazy. Eh, maybe I am, but I, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> so... Um, as I've said in previous episodes, context is really important. So it was about 2002. My son was two years old. I was now a single parent. I had stopped teaching Chinese medicine full time and had reduced my clinic hours, you know, quite a bit so that I could focus on spending more time with my son. And uh, for all you single parents out there, high fives and fist bumps for keeping it together every day. <laughs> And uh, I also, because he was very little, had some spare time. And, and this is a funny thing to share with people, but I got it in my mind for some reason to translate the Tao Te Ching into the language of my uh, culture. Uh, we, people in the West call us Navajo. Uh, we're, we, we think of ourselves as Dinech, and that covers like Navajo and Apache and all kinds of nations that are uh, still in Canada. So it's a really big language, and it's act that language was actually used in World War II as a code language. Cool. Like, uh, I actually read a book that you recommended about a couple snipers in World War I. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, that was a three-day road. That, that was a different culture. Those, those were uh, Anishinaabe men from uh, Canada. That's actually a true story. 
Uh, it's also a true story that people use Navajo as a code language. But anyway, there I was in 2002 taking care of a two-year-old boy when, when I was you know, with him. Uh, and in my spare time, I'm translating the Tao Te Ching from Chinese into Dine, or Navajo, and then uh, translating that into English, not, not in a literal kind of like ABC kind of way, but in a different way, because I've found that the, a lot of the translations into English from the Tao Te Ching are often coming from this kind of, I don't know, I think of like Oxford University and monotheistic religion, and, and it's like they have a preconception of, of what Taoism should be because it's supposed to be a religion. So when people translate that, you know, it kind of has a weird edge to it. So I got it in my mind that it made more sense, and for me it did, to go through that process. And also, context being important. Uh, go ahead. I think I remember you describing English as a little more subjective and almost like emergence language, and then there's just more room to ex express beautiful concepts or feelings about things in, in like Chinese. And is that the case for, for the language you're talking about as well? Or, uh, I would say like probably more, I see English as an operational language or a merchant language because it really focuses on value and object and a lot of things are nouns and their value is in their shape and size and, and, and value. You know, whereas Chinese is very contextual and there's many, many meanings to a lot of different words. And the meaning is determined by, you know, what you're actually doing uh, at the moment you're speaking. And it's similar with uh, other indigenous languages. I've taken some time in the last 20 years to, to learn the basics of two other languages that are from North America. Because uh, I, I do some work in Aboriginal education and... Um, all of these languages don't focus on nouns. They focus on uh, your state of being, your direct felt sense experience of the world, and what influences are happening around you that, that actually are, are uh, a part of your experience as if they're uh, a part of you. So there, there's even less... Uh, if English is solid and Chinese is water, then indigenous languages are mist. Cool. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, Kind kind of like a you know three three different states of, of 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 the world or something. So anyway, there I am, two thousand and two, mildly obsessed with translating the Tao Te Ching into other languages so I can feel around inside of it. And it was also because at the time, uh, my son being two and me being a dad and a single dad, I had it in my mind that if I'm going to be raising this boy and and help him become a man it probably isn't reasonable to just try and make him um, learn to meditate or, you know, whatever. And, and uh, it occurred to me that maybe some of the best tools he could learn about how to be a man in the world would be to learn more about the indigenous culture of, you know, my, my ancestors and, and his ancestors too. But um, so I started spending more time with elders and medicine people and going to sweat lodges and, and eventually learning uh, over a 10-year kind of apprenticeship, how to carry what we call a medicine bundle, which is a part of my personal spiritual practice. It's not something that I do as a, a kind of work. I'm not a fake hippie shaman or something. It's just a part of my, my background, right? But um, it just occurred to me that uh, that way of being in the world was the closest way I could bring my son towards like a Taoist path without trying to turn him into a you know, a Taoist or a martial artist or a, a person who, you know, relied on meditation because those cultures really focus on practice. 
and, and their way of seeing the world is to walk in a good way. So this is the weird story. Okay, let's see. It. <laughs> During that time in my life, um, you know, with all those things happening, I remember I was going to teach a class um, you know, on some aspect of Taoism and Tao Yin that had to do with uh, feeling into the seasons. So I had gone and taught my class, and then I was walking home, and, and I live in this amazing little mountain village that's like a, a one of the beautiful, most beautiful places in the world, I think, mountains and lakes, and everyone comes here to ski and mountain bike and hike and, you know, paddle and swim, and it, it's, it's like outdoor, you know, fitness heaven land, right? <laughs> it's a really great place. And um, so I'm walking home, and I'm looking around at this beautiful place, and the weirdest thing happened, and, and I can only describe it uh, as, as I can. I was walking on my way home during, down the street, and there was a red light, so I stopped. And again, I'm looking around at the land and, and reflecting on all of these things that are going on in my mind, you know, with the Tao Te Ching and, you know, connecting to my Aboriginal roots and trying to share that stuff with my son and, and trying to make those kind of decisions. And then the world changed around me. I was standing on what seemed like kind of an alpine grove, maybe an aspen grove, that had this rolling kind of meadow and hill. And there was no city anymore, no roads, no people, just a lot of birds and animals and stuff. And um, for a moment, a part of my brain was like, I think I must have got hit by a car and I must have died. Or maybe I had a stroke and I'm lying on the ground drooling or something because there's no other explanation for why I'm suddenly like, you know, walking around 10,000 years ago. But in the same land that this area of the world would have looked like if people never showed up and, you know, laid down concrete. So I'm having this really strange experience and it reminded me a lot of the experiences I had as a kid because I grew up in the bush, you know, in a hunting lodge without TV or radio. So I spent most of my time just walking around in the in the bushes. And I had this amazing experience that uh, people often describe as becoming the land because I could feel the movement of the, the air uh, in the sense of... Um, you know, day and night and hot and cold and, and things like that. And, and how air moves can tell you basically who can smell you and what you can smell. And that's just from growing up in a hunting lodge. And then I'm looking around going, well, you know, if I'm stuck 10,000 years ago, I better start to get things together because, you know, I'm going to need a place to sleep and I'll probably have to start figuring out food. And so there I am in, you know, wherever I was inside of my mind, looking around uh, at the land, trying to figure out what to do. But this other thing happened that was really intense and kind of painful. What was that? I felt the conditioning of the modern world. And I always had a problem with this, Alex. When, when I first moved out of the bush in, into the city, it drove me crazy that there was all these rules. And if you did anything wrong, you got punished. Because that's not a very Aboriginal cultural thing to do. And, you know, half my family was pretty big on punishment and the other half of my family wasn't, but um, I just found it really kind of in intense and kind of insane. So there I am, you know, in 2002, probably having a stroke drooling on the pavement, but in my mind, <laughs> having this, you know, crazy visionary experience and then feeling the pain of, of that kind of culture of always being threatened about punishment and always having to do things right based on what other people think. And all of this other kind of intense stuff that I just didn't grow up with being kind of pulled out of my body 
And it was like a science fiction thing, like having something like pulled out of your, your neural network or your meridians or, you know, it's like the matrix or something anyway. So there I was after a couple of minutes of feeling this intense kind of oppression and, and domestication being pulled out of my, my body. And that I was standing there becoming the land going like, ah, oh, wow. So this is what it felt like to be a human being up until, you know, your culture got really, really busy. That was a really powerful experience. That sounds great. A little bit of time traveling and just really con just connecting with the land there. I mean, that's like the, the dream come true for some people. I mean, I think it was for me. So, I mean, with that experience on the outside, how long do you think you were standing there like that? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to you know bring this back to the, the real world. I have no idea. I mean, I might have been standing there for maybe like a minute. I mean, maybe even a few seconds. It seemed like about 20 or 30 minutes to me, but I'm pretty sure, you know, that uh, somebody would have recognized me and said, hey, Michael, why are you just standing on the sidewalk drooling? <laughs> well, I wasn't actually drooling. I just, the imagery makes it kind of funny. So I came out of it and there I was at this, you know, the light turns green and I'm kind of walking home, you know, waiting to see what happens. And I, I get home and I, I sat down and, and kind of meditated for a while. And I think I had a good cry and did some journaling. But then I put away my my hobby of translating the Tao Te Ching into Diné or anything else because I realized that I had made a really powerful shift, at least for me, that this whole thing that Taoism was about, about becoming an authentic human being, about, you know, this whole idea of Chen Run, about, you know, refining yourself and uh, walking in a good way, that again was inspired, you know, maybe a decade before that by Gao Fu, was really what I needed to know about Taoism, was that it was completely within all of us. We just had to remove a certain amount of conditioning and pain to find out who we are so that, again, we can walk in a good way. So that, that was a couple of weird experiences that shifted my perspective on, on Taoism because Taoism can get kind of like esoteric and it can get very intellectual. But for me, I just came to this realization that uh, I would rather focus on the experiential and the, the really deep history part of Taoism because it's tangible and we all have that somewhere within us. You know, if we all have genetic memory, it's it's somewhere hidden in, in each, of, each of us. So instead of seeking something out, out there in, in the sky, maybe we can start seeking something deep within ourselves. And even looking at things in terms of molecules, the air between us and the stuff that we're made of there's really not a defining line between anything on the earth it's just coming from the earth and returning to it right so mm -hmm. so that, that was a, a really transformational experience for me but it also encouraged me as a at the time again i was teaching chinese medicine although a lot less and i had always wanted to teach what i had learned about taoism and and now i'm starting to you know now it's like 2020 but um it always just occurred to me that if I was ever to really speak to people about this and about this idea of walking in a good way and, and the teachings that go with it, um, that I would want people to be thinking about it in that way in, in the sense that, you know, this is more about a, an ancient memory than, than uh, some fancy philosophy. It's kind of like that uh, Zen concept, the old thing of just, if you admit that you have a problem, Hey, you've got one, <laughs> you know, it's just get out of your own way. Stop <laughs> kind of, and, and in that, in the Tao Te Ching, there's a great little part that I love reading just about reduce, 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 clear, 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 
clean things away, just look for that still water at the end, right? So, yeah, and, and that's the idea that you know it seems that what we're seeking is hidden within us instead of something way outside of us that we have to you know go and chase around and and find in some other part of the world, you know. And that's where I think a lot of people can sort of get lost in life is definitely chasing externally like a validation or a sense of true meaning but it's if it's out here if it's over there whatever it is uh you know it's not the same <laughs> it's it's not as fulfilling mm -hmm. as stripping away layers of things that are not really working in your life or even recognizing what those are yeah and we looked at how to do that in the first couple of episodes yeah, well, that's 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 a, that's going to be a theme, I think, for a long time. <laughs> so, so there's another way to, to describe this to people that uh, isn't about my experience um, and whether or not I had a stroke in 2002. <laughs> Still with us, so I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just want to speak a little bit about kind of what I what I think of is uh, the origin of Taoism. And, uh, but in a very experiential way. So if, if we were to all decide to like, you know, have that metaphoric stroke and go back 10,000 years and for the, the sake of honoring where Taoism come from, comes from, imagine going back about 10,000 years in, you know, the, the central plateau of China where there was just a lot of hunter gatherers running around trying to learn how to, you know, tame dogs and pigs. You know, and everything that mattered in the world was about the seasons, right? Way, way back then, uh, one teacher told me that there was only two seasons. It's getting warmer, yang, and it's getting colder, yin. You know, and if you can, if you can find some way of gaining, you know, any adaptive advantage with even just those two aspects of the world, in a way you're evolving, but you're still as life, you know, held within the seasons, held within what, you know, the sky and the earth and the land are doing. And there's a very different way of feeling your existence and feeling your meditation and feeling your Qigong practice, uh, maybe in, in every other part of your life, when you feel held and embraced, but also limited and challenged by something as simple and powerful as nature. You know, not going to the idea that there's a God and there's rules and there's anything else. Just simply, let's try and make the most of today. Let's try and do our best with the weather. Let's try and learn the most we can about the, the sources of life around us to keep ourselves and the people we love alive. But the rules are not up to us. Right? The sudden things that are going to change everything are only going to come from an accidental moment uh, of realization about the way nature does what nature does. So I ask people sometimes to just go and meditate. And again, if that's a new idea for you, stop what you're doing, press pause, go outside, and imagine that whatever city you're in or whatever concrete you're on just disappears. And what would it be like to live 10,000 years ago and feel into the world around you and know that that's the best thing you could do to feed your family, to grow as a person, to invent the next mousetrap, you know, or whatever animals you want to eat. Mousetrap, probably not the greatest choice, but 
but just just to feel yourself in the world and to be so humbled and so uh, loved and embraced by nature, right? And as long as you can stay alert, participate, you know, focus, learn, um, you're going to be one of the people who who is going to continue walking in a good way. And, and you're going to be a person of consequence in your community because you're really paying attention to the world and the rules that matter way back then. So if you've read the Tao Te Ching, and I know you have, there's, there's a lot of commentary in there about how can you be a good king? How can you have your boot on the throats of other people and still be a human being? So I'm just going to speak to that transition because that's where Taoism comes from. So about 7,000, 8,000 years ago, they've tamed the dogs, they've tamed the pigs, they've got some goats, they're learning to plant food in the compost, and you know, although they're migrating now, they're starting to see huge piles of food in the compost heap every, you know, you know, summer and fall when you're, you know, walking around in your migratory routes, and then people get this new idea, maybe we should just grow food, you know, and, and control that and stay in one place. And that's happened in every culture almost around the entire world over the last 10,000 years. So now, imagine what it would be like to be a person who used to be a hunter-gatherer, intimately aware of, in love with, a child of, and also in a way um, fighting against nature, you know, in, 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 in some ways. Now your job is to fight against the rodents who are going to eat your food. Those still wandering people, the hunter-gatherers who come to steal your food that you're growing in big piles. And then when you start, you know, storing your food in clay pots in the ground or in a root cellar in the side of a hill, now your job isn't to be at one with nature. Your job is to defend the food against people who are hungry. So now the guy who has the biggest stick is the king. Right? So now your life is about controlling resources. And we go from what's called a cyclic relationship with life to an accumulative or linear relationship with life. So why does that matter? It matters because this is a practice. Taoism is a practice. And if you're going to practice Taoism, you know, based on its origins, it's about being humble enough to learn to feel into the world around you, to become the land, to reconnect to the sky and the seasons in a tangible way, you know, uh, as, as more a, an affirmation of humility and including that bit of chaos. Because the only other option we have is to approach our practice as if we're, you know, the guy with a stick trying to control who gets to eat the food. Or the guy who's running the village and trying to make everyone farm harder so that next year we have more food, so that the next year we can have more kids, so that next year we can have more people to protect more food, so we can grow more stuff to put more things and blah, blah, blah. And that accumulative relationship with life, with nature, changes your spiritual practice. Because now I'm trying to improve my consciousness instead of remove the obstacles, like you had said, peeling back the layers. And there's an aggression to beating what your enemy is, instead of the humility of trying to learn from the seasons of your life. So the reason I share that 
that little story, you know, is to ask yourself, are you approaching your practice, you know, in the sense of Taoism, in a humble, connected with the natural world, balance between what you know about, you know, yin and yang and the flow of life and the chaos of the flow of life? You know, are you in it as a member of the big team of life or are you separate from it, kind of club it over the head in some way to get your ceremonial obligations just right so that you can win at spiritual practice and get some kind of prize? Karma points. That's what comes to mind with that. Some people just, I'm going to do a few nice things so that these nice things come back to me. <laughs> Well, I think that's a reason. I think that's a reasonable thing around balance. But uh, you know, the the point I'm really trying to encourage people to make is, we have to remove some mundane conditioning to to really come back to a a, a Taoist experience. And a really great metaphor, if not a really great truth about that, is to remind ourselves that it's kind of like, if not exactly like, the indigenous experience, because that's where Taoism comes from. And uh, the actual teaching we call walking in a good way, like many other teachings, has four Chinese characters to it. And each one of those characters is a fundamental element um, of the experience and the understanding of the teaching. So that's what we're going to get into next is the actual teaching on walking in a good way. So uh, what occurs to me might be a good idea is to take a little bit of a pause so that you can consider, you know, as the listener, what you've heard and, and learned about and thought about. Maybe go outside and, and you know, really connect to whatever the weather is around you. And maybe ask yourself if you do feel a kind of controlling impatience or any kind of dominion in your life, and especially about your spiritual practice. Because what we're going to do when we come back to part two is learn this teaching on walking in a good way and really explore where Taoism comes from on an experiential level. In the spirit of patience, let's take a short intermission. When you are ready for part two, tap the link below. <laughs>